So over the last few years, the, you know, the news business has really become hurt by uh, two big things, really. First, we've had uh, the collapse of um, revenues and the ability to make money, which has obviously resulted in a lot of layoffs and newsroom closures. But we've also seen uh, a lot of political attacks on our business, particularly from uh, Republicans. Donald Trump loves to tell everybody how much he hates us uh, and how we are enemies of the people. And uh, you know, you'd think if you weren't in an old school newspaper, or if uh, certainly if you were a conservative in the media world, that you probably would have been at least a little bit immune from that. But the reality is that everyone is being hurt by the collapse in revenue, and even conservative outlets that you would think would not have been hurt uh, during this, this this period have also seen uh, a lot of closures. Today, I'm going to be talking with Jim Swift. He worked for a long time for the Weekly Standard, which for decades was really the gold standard of conservative news and opinion in the United States. And uh, they collapsed despite the fact that they were one of the main voices uh, on the never Trumper right. And uh, he lost his job last year and has now moved on to the bulwark, a new uh, conservative website that is trying to make a go of it. I figured I'd sit down to talk with him and see what he thinks about uh, the news business now, both in terms of the business side and also where conservatives are fitting into this new landscape. I'm John Stanton, and this is The 30, the end of the news. For today in the podcast, we have um, Jim Swift, who is um, uh, an old friend of mine. We were together in the Senate when you were staff, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, now you've been working in And the, we were together this, at Roll Call together. We, we were overlapped Roll briefly. Yeah. And now, uh, you've, so you've been out of the out of the, the Stafford game for a long time now, right? Yeah, almost 10 years. Almost 10 years. So. And you were for a long time at um, the Weekly Standard. Yes. Right? I was there for almost seven years. And now you are at the Bulwark. Yes. Which is kind of starting to replace the Standard a little bit in terms of the media space, right? Yeah, at least on the political side, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, you know, we're, we're a small operation. We're not like 40 people with a books and arts section and a weekly magazine. But on the politics end of things, uh, at least in the opinion side, yeah, we're, we're, we, we all worked at the Weekly Standard. And this is what we did after we all got fired. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I, you know, one of the things that we're trying to look at is sort of what's happened with media in the last, you know, two or three years. Um, and to me, the, the standard shutting down was remarkable because in a time when you have, you know, a very, this sort of new version of conservatism that Trump represents coming in um, and taking over a lot of the conservative media, there's not really any major voices out there or, or publications out there other than them um, that were sort of speaking against Trump in a sort of, a, in that kind of a way from a more traditional kind of a conservative viewpoint, right? And if, I, I felt like there was a lot of interest in that from conservatives and from Republicans and frankly from anybody else too that was interested in this stuff. Yeah, our and, audience, the Bulwark, is largely liberal because they, they want a voice that doesn't agree with them that makes them think, hey, you know, maybe there are sane people out there who don't share my worldview, uh, but who are not racist, who are not misogynist, who, who are not insane or, you know, terrible hypocrites. Right. <laughs> and uh, it's been really interesting to see how our audience changed, you know, going from a legacy print weekly uh, to, you know, an online site. What, is, well, what has that change been like? What do you think? So a little, like, little backstory here. I, I subscribed to the Weekly Standard in 1999 when I was a young conservative act activist. And I read it for many, many years. And if you'd asked me at the time, like, hey, you know, someday you're going to work there, I would have told you you're crazy. But it was a great job. It was a it was a great publication, and you know we were all very 
uh, upset um, about how it ended. Um, but I, I read it during the Bush years and I read it during the Obama years. And as the internet has changed journalism, you see that people go to places uh, to get information that confirm their worldview. And I mean, that that's not unique. Uh, you know, the internet is not to, to blame for that. Um, confirmation bias has always been a thing, but it definitely accelerates it in the in people searching for their silos. And I remember we had a, uh, we had many um, cover stories that were critical of Trump and we had great art and that we were known for, you know, mm -hmm. kind of fun, fun cover art. And one woman wrote in, and I, I monitored the, the kind of general inbox, and she goes, you guys would have never treated Obama the same way. And I'm thinking to myself, where were you for the last eight years? Because, and I went, I even went through the, pro, uh, the process, I went through our covers, and I sent her a zip file of like 47 cover pictures of us being critical of Obama. Mm -hmm. And she just didn't like the, the kind of satirical art that we had. I mean, it wasn't the one where Trump was, you know, kind of uh, like climbing the skyscraper and, you know, like being Godzilla. <laughs> but it was, you know, him and Melania and Melania was, you know, kind of in sort of inappropriate uh, dress like she was in the, the whole crew spat. Um, but I'm thinking to myself, like, where, where were you? Like, you read our magazine, you know what we did, but she just didn't like that we were critical of Republicans. Yeah. And, you know, the Weekly Standard was critical of Bush. I mean, we're, we were often known uh, for being influential there, but, you know, I mean, we, we disagreed on Harriet Myers. I wasn't there during the time I was, you know, in college. But um, the, the, the Weekly Standard was not just completely Bush cheerleaders. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, so it was interesting to me to think, like, did they not think that we would ever criticize Republicans ever? Like they did during Bush all the time. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, that to me, I was just like, oh man, like, and it's only gotten worse. So our new audience uh, at the Bulwark is a lot of old weekly standard kind of diehards. Um, but we've gotten a lot of um, middle and left people who write in. Um, I mean, we're a nonprofit. Um, we don't have a paywall. We don't have ads on our website. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, we have ads on our podcast, but not our newsletters and people write in and I've just like made lots of new internet friends. I'm usually good at making internet enemies. Who isn't? <laughs> but, um, it's just really been interesting to see. And people love telling me or us, uh, but me being the person who opens the emails, like how they found our site, why they enjoy reading it. Even if at the end of the day, they probably don't agree with what we're saying, mm -hmm. but they still like it because I think they want that sane voice out there and they don't want to think ill of, you know, your enemy, so to speak. Um, so it's, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're really enjoying the, the audience we have and, uh, you know, we hope to stick around for a while. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's, you know, you guys have so far been one of the very few bright spots for media, right? In the last two years. I mean, whereas everyone else has been kind of like collapsing. Well, with layoff after layoff, I mean, you and I both know how it is. It's it's not a fun position to be in. Um, but, you know, you see this consolidation and like the Washington Post Express, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm seeing that Amazon has come up with some carbon neutral plan to beat the Paris Accord by 10 years. And I'm thinking you couldn't have done anything for the 75 guys who hawked the newspaper who got no notice that they basically didn't have jobs the next day from mm -hmm. one of the richest men in the world. Come on. Um, not to mention the journalists who also got shafted too, but I think, you know, the, they will have a slightly easier time than the buskers or the husker, or what do you call them? Hawkers. But it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just not a great time for journalism as you, you know, and that's, that's why I'm here talking to you. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you see also like a similar kind of a thing, like what happened with, with, with you guys with confirmation bias going on, I think a little bit with, um, 
local news too, right? I think that you see increasingly um, because the local news has been so decimated by like mergers and by the um, the collapse of like ad revenue and everything else for them that like now you have the like you go onto like your local news website and a lot of it is aggregated content that has nothing to do with your local community and it creates you you know like it's just get the scary stories in there and that scares the hell out of people and that's kind of what they get now shouldn't they be watching like the local news for those scary stories you know you would think right yeah but well i mean it doesn't work you go to like a tv like a tv website and it's all stories that aren't even from the community you know but it's like giant alligator on the loose you know like this mother left her kid in the car and it's like you know five states over from two weeks ago and it's not even thinking something that you should worry about but i'm not sure if you read this i wrote what it definitely is a very insidery story. It does not make me like one of these kind of man of the people stories. But the story I wrote was Mike Pence was talking uh, at some event. He said, you know, most people out here don't read the New York Times and Washington Post. And I just kind of snapped at that because his, his local journalism has been hollowed out. And there's nothing wrong with syndication. Syndication has, you know, done a lot of great things for uh, a lot of people. But, um, you know, if you read your local paper, odds are you're reading the New York Times or the Washington Post. Because when mm. I go home to Cleveland, Ohio, and I read the Cleveland Plain Dealer uh, page after page, and not just the Associated Press or Reuters, you know, which are long wires, but WAPO and the New York Times have, have, have really uh, grown in this space. And, and a lot of these papers don't send uh, tons of people to Washington anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, your, your local paper would be lucky to have one person based in Washington. Mm -hmm. And they're probably, you know, getting drinks right now at the National Press Club because it's cheaper than an office. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I thought Pence's comment was dumb, but uh, for someone who's talking about like, oh, like I read lots of local papers, it's like, no, you don't. Otherwise you would have known that it's mostly the New York Times, the Washington Post, except for sports and like Metro coverage. Right, right. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, you do come from a city that has had a, has a newspaper that's been really hit hard by um, the contractions. And, you know, the plain, the plain dealer was like one of the gold standards of, of news in this country for decades. It's a great paper. And, you know, um, you see this in St. Louis where I went to college uh, also is doing this. They sold the iconic St. Louis Post-Dispatch building. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now they're like, hey, maybe Jack Dorsey's going to buy it for Square. <laughs> and, you know, what there's a, when you go into the building, I, I have friends who've worked there over the years. Um, I didn't plan to go into journalism. It was sort of an accident. But I had friends uh, from college who became local journalists. But they have this big speech from Pulitzer. Uh, up there. He was the publisher of the Post-Dispatch. And they're like, is this going to be condos now? And then, you know, it, it, how ironic would it be if like Jack Dorsey, again, one of the world's richest people, uh, you know, turns it into a square. Could be could be worse. Could be a WeWork. It could be WeWork. Yeah. Yeah. And they could have uh, tequila shots for when they lay everybody off out of the place. <laughs> yeah. But no beef. No beef. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, one of, you know, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on um, the this issue of, of like, Google and Facebook and their control over so much of the ad space. I mean, you know, for me, it seems pretty obvious that, that, that something has to be done with this at this point, that like, I don't know that, you know, allowing companies to essentially become de facto um, regulatory agencies of themselves really, and like to, to control marketplaces like this is healthy. I mean, it, obviously you look at our industry and, and you know, when more and more people are reading the news and you are like, and like BuzzFeed when I was there, tons of ads on the site and yet they kept losing money, even though they were having more and more readers, you know, there's obviously something wrong there. Yeah. Right? The CPMs go downward and downward and, you know, 
when we were at the Weekly Standard, we were owned by a conservative philanthropic billionaire. We lost money every year that we were in existence, just like the Washington Examiner, which uh, remains and uh, succeeded us, does. Uh, you know, people, those things were not owned necessarily for profit. They were owned for influence. And, you know, as we're seeing, it's very hard uh, to, to make a profit. And I remember back when I worked in the Senate, I think I can tell this story now, but uh, one of the vice presidents of Gannett, uh, was like a constituent. I think he worked for the Arizona Republic or something. Mm -hmm. And we gave him tickets. And, you know, he asked me, he said, I know you're, you sound young. What, what publications do you pay for? And I was like, well, you know, I pay for the Wall Street Journal, but like my office reimburses me and that's it, you know, because I work on the Hill and I get all these things for free. Like, you know, the magazines just show up because mm -hmm. they, they want to influence the influencers. And this was 2008. This was for Obama's inauguration. And like I talked with him about this, my, my, mom, my mom was a newspaper writer, um, you know, and this was long before I even went into journalism, but I was just like really, you know, straightforward with this guy. But he kind of recognized there's a problem with people being willing to pay for journalism. You know, they might be willing to pay for a discounted Android phone. They might be wanting the new Apple, you know, 11 with the three cameras and all this other stuff, but they're very unlikely to want to pay for journalism. And uh, I spend a lot of the very little money I make uh, paying for journalism that I enjoy reading. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like The Athletic is an interesting model because The Athletic has uh, succeeded because local papers just started firing people. And, uh, you know, are they a Silicon Valley, you know, VC funded startup that, you know, you could, you know, you could write the case against The Athletic? Sure. But the way I see it, they're giving people jobs. Yeah. And um, that that's not to, to dodge the, the Google question, which you point out is, you know, can they be their own sheriff? I, I don't think they, I'm not sure, or, or Facebook. I mean, uh, Twitter Twitter is, uh, people overestimate the influence of yeah, Twitter. Yeah. I um, agree. You know, I mean, I, they're clearly not raking in the money with ads, but it's just like the place where you and I go to talk. Yeah, um, I get yelled at by people. Yeah, so, can the government, like, I'm not sure, I mean, I'm, again, I, foremost, I'm a small government conservative. I'm not sure there's really an easy way to have the government step in and do it. And, you know, not to sound like Paul Ryan or someone here, but like, it, it's incumbent upon people. Uh, you get the journalism that you deserve and that you're willing to pay for. And if you're unwilling to pay for it and you're willing to outsource these journalistic choices to Google or Facebook or Twitter and the algorithm, you know, you deserve the outcomes that you get. And if you want to be informed, you should, you should pay for it. Um, yeah. Although, I mean, you know, if you look back, like, like newspaper subscriptions um, were never the primary model, right? It was always mixed with ads, right? Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, you're, you know, your newspaper subscriptions were always small, right, and classifieds, you know, and, and I think, you know, I do think that people need to be paying more for it. But, you know, for me, it seems like there is a case to be made that, that the government needs to step in and deal with these guys because, like, they're clearly – you know, when they are setting the ad rates and then taking money on both ends and then, you know, giving themselves the best deals, you know, you end up like seeing this with these guys. But do you and they also determine via the algorithm what gets seen. Right. So like if, if, if your content is dependent on the algorithm, I think that's the crux in all of it is, yeah. uh, you know, it, it could be a lawsuit that, you know, results in something and, and spitting off. But, you know, in journalism, we call it red team, blue team, right? Like if there's like a huge story that you would do at BuzzFeed, I'm sure that, you know, not like your editor would send someone to kind of, you know, counter all of your stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's none of that there. No. Uh, yeah. And we, we don't even know how the algorithms work. No, yeah, right, because there's no transparency. And that's another problem with it, that, like, you know, because we treat the Internet, and I think it's a good thing that we treat the Internet as a, not a, a utility, 
Um, right, Section two thirty, and all right. This. You know, I think I think that it, that it being treated not as a, as as, a, as a, like a public space, right? Like the airwaves, like they did with the television and, and radio, was good for a lot of of what has happened with the internet, right? Yeah. It cr- created space for people to do weird shit that eventually created weird apps that now are things ways people communicate with each other or whatever, like make people's lives better. But I do think that the that I feel like the by also allowing these these you know handful of companies really two three companies to take over all of it and they're now dictating everything right and you know what's funny about this is um in in fake news and i'm i'm glad that the kind of reward for clickbaitiness has gone away i mean like sensational headlines and things i mean that that was like all you would see for a while and the the, the algorithm would reward that because people mm-hmm. would see it and it would just go and it hasn't gone away entirely but you know now I see uh, literal fake news where people are sharing copy and pasted things about the Rome statute and why you know Facebook doesn't own their content. And um, well, these people have no idea what they're talking about. Like you know the the, the International Criminal Court's Rome statute or, or whatever right. doesn't apply. Like you signed you know the EULA, you agreed to give the Facebook your content. You don't get to retroactively choose that. But the sort of individualism that people are displaying when they share this obvious fake news. It kind of gives me sort of hope, but at hmm. the end of the day, you still have to pony up. Um, you know, we live or we live and work around D.C. People hated paying five cents for a bag because they didn't want to pay the tax. Uh, you know, to save the Anacostia and Potomac rivers. Okay, I get that, but like, you don't have to use bags. You can bring your own. And if it's about shaping behavior, um, I'd argue that a lot of these big tech giants are through their own fuck ups. Uh, inadvertently pushing people to kind of reconsider how they go about it. Does that mean they subscribe to their local paper? I don't know. They're probably going to go to patch.com, mm-hmm. you know, to see the alligator or, <laughs> you know, the bear that snuck out of the woods. Um, but uh, when people start losing access to it, and it's, I don't know if we're well beyond that point at that point or if that point hasn't come yet, but when people stop getting access to independent news for free, um, whether that means paywalls go up or people don't participate, you know, with um, the social media giants. But when people start losing the ability to find out real information that impacts them, um, what will their decision be? And I, I think the real worry in all of this and the importance of why you guys are doing this project and asking these questions is what happens if we come to that realization too late? Yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, if you look at like places like, like Louisiana, right, the, the, the Times pick is gone. I mean, they, they rebranded the, uh, the, the advocate to have the name in it because they don't, they realized that it looked really bad that they were killing off like the third oldest newspaper in the United States, but they killed it off, right? I mean, they fired almost everybody and um, it's gone. And that newspaper <laughs> is the reason that um, in Tammany Parish, which they call uh, in Louisiana, we call it um, St. Slamany Parish because the sheriff was just brutal. Like he ruled the place with an iron thumb and like the newspaper came in and was able to like basically get this guy put in jail because they did a bunch of investigations in him and and I don't think that you're going to have the advocate doesn't have the resources to do that by itself anymore right I mean like the competition amongst news outlets is a very important part of it that I think people don't quite realize they think well there's still you know AP is still around or whatever there's still somebody doing news so yeah is, is AP going to do right? spotlight I mean and, right. and that's the importance I mean with with towns losing uh, both paper, uh, you know, sometimes both papers, but um, single paper towns, I mean, that's not great. 
um, th that competition, even if you don't like the editorial bent, it's good that there's a Boston Herald and a Boston Globe um, because they keep each other on their toes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, in Cleveland, uh, the Plain Dealer, I mean, they, they bought up all the local weekly papers that I distributed as a young paper <laughs> boy. And they're now part of, and I don't know if they're part of the unionized side or the, the non-unionized side. And that, that's always an issue now with these sort of conglomerates and unionization, which is uh, a big question. And, um, you know, most people I know in the journalism world are very much on board with unionization. Um, you know, I don't know if unionization would have saved my job or, you know, yeah. cost others because I worked at a right-leaning outlet that was privately held. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's worth wondering, I mean, uh, you know, where can journalists help themselves? Where can editors help themselves? And then you see people pitting editor, you know, and management loves it when writers are going against editors. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to do a unified front, but in the end of the day, I mean, and unless you go start your own new thing, uh, you know, you don't really have much of a say when you're you know, part of a big conglomerate. How's, how has this been for um, conservative journalists, actually? I, I, like, have they had, is it, is it harder for, for conservative journalists who don't want to engage in, you know, sort of Breitbarty kind of nonsense, but want to be like conservative journalists to find work as a result of the layoffs? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, we were lucky that most of my colleagues at the Weekly Standard, virtually all of them, have eventually found other things. Um, and, you know, I think that's a testament to what a great team that we had. Um, it, even that we worked at a place that uh, didn't really uh, uphold the current doctrine of, of what right-leaning outlets come from. <laughs> um, but it's interesting to me to see a lot of the people that I know, you know, work at other outlets and whatnot, um, you know, you see Breitbart. Uh, I was talking to Columbia Journalism Review about this a couple of weeks ago and how much their traffic has declined. Mm -hmm. Breitbart was seeing record traffic because they were, you know, the primo number one sycophancy department under Bannon for Trump. And then, you know, now they have to compete against like really good writers who uh, the incentives, um, you know, you see like Salem Media and whatnot. You know, the, there's no doubt that the, the screws are being put to people who don't, uh, you know, get fully on board with Trump. Mm -hmm. um, but now they have really good writers who uh, have been enlisted in the cause. And um, you wonder why so many Republican House members are retiring from the House. Well, it's because it's not fun. And I think a lot of conservative writers, um, I mean, I'm not sure I'm finding any of this fun. It's frustrating. <laughs> I wake up every day and I'm like, crap, what did the president tweet before I woke up? You know, like right. what, what sort of fire do we have to put out to get today? But I come at that from a Republican critic of Trump's perspective. Imagine being someone who's not fully on board, who's like, hey, guys, maybe we're making a huge mistake. And, you know, you're not really allowed that independence. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what we're seeing in a lot of these outlets is that they don't offer their writers independence because uh, and, and unless they end up leaving, uh, they silence is a much better strategic option for yeah. your for your professional future. Huh. Do you think um – do you think that the conservatives on the Hill um, are, are going to be willing to take up these issues, like especially issues with like potentially trying to break up face, Facebook or, you know, really going at them, especially considering there's some their you know, um, the hostile relationships some of them have with sort of the media writ large, right? Yes and no. I mean, you see right now when it comes to like, Republicans don't usually like regulating, right? I mm -hmm. mean, this is this is a hallmark of this administration is, is its efforts to deregulate things. Um, and Republicans have not really even been um, 
interested in breaking things up unless it was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. But, you know, that was 11 years ago. And, you know, now, now I'm sure everything's great. Um, <laughs> but um, where you see the Hill, especially like Josh Hawley, who's taking a, a big lead on this issue. And then, you know, Ted Cruz, who I'm a little surprised about, and um, Mike Lee also kind of have gotten on board. Now, the hearings that, you know, they've had in the House, you know, they've had Diamond and Silk. It literally is a bread and circuses show. It's insane. Yeah. My, I think there might be some willingness if uh, they're going to focus on what I think is the unserious uh, criticism of Facebook and Twitter, which is like victimhood. Mm -hmm. Right. Victimhood sells Republicans, conservatives, they're victims. We're being censored, even though, you know, really censorship occurs. The government, this is a violation of the First Amendment, even though they don't really understand the First Amendment <laughs> or Section 230. So I think there is a chance that if they do address um, the advertising aspect of, of Facebook and Google and to a lesser degree, Twitter, um, you know, things could get like brought in, but it'd be like, you know, getting a rider on an omnibus package. Mm -hmm. If Republicans are going to do anything, and let's be honest, I mean, with the Senate, you know, Nancy Pelosi could pass whatever she wants. But if, if anything's going to get through Mitch McConnell's Senate, it's probably going to be something closer to Josh Hawley's stuff. But I can't think, knowing what Mitch McConnell's views are on campaign finance, that he sees what Josh Hawley's doing and goes, I'm yeah. going to go along with that. Um, but I've been wrong about McConnell before. Um, and, you know, his adaptability um, and flexibility on principles to ret <laughs> retain power, um, uh, you know, we're, we're definitely seeing those right now. Yes, he is. He definitely can do some. Um, He's got to uh, get reelected first, though. stuff, though. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, it's, it's an interesting question for me because like, I, I do look at like Holly and Cruz and. You know, when you were in the Senate and we were when I was covering the Senate when you were there, like the Senate was always a place where like sometimes these guys would pick up these um, really kind of like crazy hardcore message things that like some of the conservatives in the House were doing, like Steve King or whatever, right? And they would right. they would parrot some of that language, but really it was um, performative, right? Because yeah, they were trying to get press, ironically. Right, right. And, you know, and so, like, you know, they would take up, you know, just any kind of a bill that, like, had the name of this thing and maybe a little bit of something on it. But there was actually really substantive legislation inside of the bill, right? Like, yes. Like, that may not be what they talked about so much, but that's what they were actually trying to, to do. Because they needed right? the base to get behind it. Right. You know, what, what, what constituency... Is there? I mean, I think that the people who are going to listen to this podcast, who are hearing me say, hey, you should pay for good journalism, they're like, hell yeah, I agree. I already right. do. How do you motivate people? And, um, you know, obviously these guys are good at that. Um, so, I, you know, I think that if there is action that would become law under this administration, here's the thing also. I mean, Trump, I mean, the permanent victim in chief, um, you know, would love to start kneecapping this. It would be great for her, his electoral politics to say that we went after the Hollywood Silicon Valley elite. Mm -hmm. You could get a lot of bad with maybe some good. And, um, you know, I question what the, the good would be because uh, I don't know how you, you solve this, at least from my worldview as sort of a small government kind of conservative. Like these guys are cynical deregulators. I'm sort of like a, a serious Joker-esque deregulator. Like, hmm. um, you know, the Tea Party had a rally today on the Hill, and I'm like, oh, are they there to talk about death? Okay, let's just not even finish that sentence. <laughs> you know, because everything is so cynical, and I guess I'm so cynical at this point. So I think there's a possibility, but it would probably be like, you know, a couple things on an omnibus, sort of like anti-Facebook, anti-Google thing. And the markets, of course, would love that. Yeah. You know? 
that's I think that's probably the only thing that would keep Donald Trump from ever acting on this is that uh, doing anything to regulate these. So, I mean, you saw the reaction to GDPR. Um, you know, the Chicago Tribune would just block European visitors. I thought that was kind of a solid troll move. But, yeah. um, you know, but I, you know, you have to think in Trumpian terms. And is it bad for the market? You know, but might be a, a right thing to do and legal. Uh, you know, Trump doesn't think that way. No, no, no. In fact, that would probably, if you said that to him, he'd probably say, well, I don't want to do that then. That doesn't seem like a thing I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or then two days later, he'd be like, well, actually, you know, someone else has spoken to me and uh, mm -hmm. now I'm now I'm convinced. But um, I've been very disappointed as a former Hill staffer and someone who watches the Hill closely um, to kind of see this sort of departure um, from the Republicans. Um, I, I'm not optimistic in the short term that, they are going to be willing to do anything that is serious or thoughtful because I think until 2020, it's all cynical. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, it's been, it's amazing to have like, have been, I mean, I grew up here and you know, I remember, you know, George Bush the first, right? And like that kind of a Republican, which was like, we don't want to have regulations if we don't need them, but if we do need them, let's try to do them in a way that are, you know, going to have a minimal bad impacts, right? Right. But they also, like, he was a very much like a law and order guy, right? Like, they did antitrust work and they, you know, went after, you know, bad actors. And it does feel like um, there is a, a lot of skepticism about even just basic sort of enforcement of the law of, like... You we know, we can't even staff the Federal Election Commission. You right. Know, like, like, right now, like, we're praying to staff the FEC at a time when foreign state actors are trying to... Hack, hack our elections and influence, you know, our politics. And we're now like, hey, can we just get like, you know, a quorum on the FEC? Um, do I sound that cynical? I am that cynical. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, like I guess it was in a hearing the other day and um, Mike Lee was talking about the F, uh, FTC investigation and DOJ investigations into Google and, and Facebook. And he, it almost seemed like he wasn't sure that they should be out there doing it. And, and I was like, well, that's, like, I feel like that's just like a basic like function of what they're supposed to do, right? Like they're supposed to investigate these giant ass corporations. Yeah, like Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission, I mean, about deceptive advertising. Mm -hmm. You know, they could have it like, whether or not Diamond and Silk's feelings have been hurt is not <laughs> important. I think that rises to the level of like, even a meeting with a legislative assistant because they're nuts. But whether or not uh, influencing the algorithms, um, you know, is a deceptive trade practice under Section 5 is something that Congress uh, has, has not only the ability to do, but probably the definitely the responsibility to do. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's, it's clown show after clown show over there. Um, and if they're not going to bring serious witnesses, I mean, look, I, I know that being in the House minority is not fun, but it's still the job you signed up for. You know, don't – I mean – <laughs> don't treat it like a circus and, and then complain about the circus, you know, and right. I, I, it just, it frustrates the ever loving hell out of me. Yeah. Well, one last thing I want to ask you, I think, um, what would you, what would be advice that you would give a young journalists or like kids coming out of college? Other than don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Assuming they're definitely going to do it. Like, yeah. Because there is that type of person who, you know, just knows that that that's what they mm -hmm. want to do. Um, and I think what really saddens me is I, I wrote editorials for my college paper. I was not like my colleague Joe Palazzolo of the Wall Street Journal uh, from the University News at St. Louis U, you know, who's gone on to be a stellar journalist and like, you know, kick ass. Um, it's sad to me to think that in a young journalist's eye right now, 
their college paper might be the best job in journalism that they've ever had. Hmm. Um, because, uh, you know, I, and I used to talk to young journalists back when I was at the Standard, at the National Journalism Center, which is a conservative run sort of like uh, pipeline for conservative journalism. And they don't really invite me back anymore, you can imagine. <laughs> um, but uh, I always was, um, when I would give them advice, I would tell them to think about their career trajectory. Um, and I think I've changed my mind on this because uh, people should be willing to take risks. And there are lots of good startups out there. Um, and I, I'm not saying this just because I'm at the bulwark, but because I think the nature of journalism, at least on the right, has changed. Um, I always used to be sort of like the slow and steady safe method, you know, like only work at this place. I mean, I'm not saying like go work at Breitbart. Like I would not advise anyone to go do that or big league yeah. politics or any of these kind of like crank sites that are conspiratorial. But, you know, be willing to take risks because um, even the people who work for these big conglomerates, be they, you know, at the Cleveland Plain Dealer or the Post-Dispatch or BuzzFeed, I mean, which, you know, more startup is, you know, but, um, you know, they're seeing layoffs and, you know, we saw layoffs at Roll Call. So my advice for young journalists, I used to talk to um, young kind of right-leaning kids at the uh, Young America's Foundation National Journalism Center, and I, I always advocated that they look at their resume as a trajectory, that when they go into whatever their next job, not everyone might stay in journalism forever, but you know, you should kind of look up at it as like a, a ladder and then you should show progression and, 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 and growth. Um, but now in, in, in this industry, I, I think that you're just going to get fired a lot of times. And if, if you're listening to this and you, you know, you're the kind of young person, um, uh, who wants to go into this field, you know, it's like the, what did the kamikaze instructor say to his students? Watch closely. I'm only going to do this once, you know? <laughs> so if, if, if you're down, if you're, if, if, if you're down for this, I, I respect the hell out of you. Cause I, I kind of fell ass backwards into it, but you're going to get fired a lot. And, um, once you acknowledge that reality of where journalism is now, um, I, I think that you can live a little bit more fearlessly and do a really good job, you know, um, I don't think anyone goes into a job wondering when they're going to get fired, but in journalism, that's probably something you should think about. Just like you should have life insurance, mm -hmm. um, it's the responsible thing to do. And um, you know, you don't know where your next job's going to go. Like I said, I came into this industry by accident, and I love it. This might be my last job in the industry. Um, who knows? But um, if if you can approach this without the sort of fear of getting fired, you're going to do better journalism, and you're going to be happier for it. And, you know, when the Grim Reaper of journalism comes for you, you'll be prepared for the next thing. But if you if you if you approach it with that mindset, uh, you're going to be happier and do a much better job. Well, uh, thank you very much for coming. Uh, I appreciate you. Hey, appreciate you having me, man. And I love, love what you guys are doing. And uh, it's, it's very important. And, um, you know, hopefully our members of Congress will start being a little bit more serious about it. <laughs>